We have a few texts today for our next sermon in the series, Mere Humanity. They're printed there on page 8 in your bulletin. You will very quickly pick up the theme. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone's a friend to a man who gives gifts. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Work, Lord, mightily among us now as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So in this series on mere humanity, we have been working our way, as you know, through a number of what I've called pieces from the game board of human life that we all deal with every day. And we've arrived with these last two, the friend today, the city next week. We've arrived at these, in these last two pieces in the realm of the social. You know, we are social, social animals, we've been called, right? From the playground to hospice, there's social stuff in our lives. And just kind of get into that territory and start to explore it a bit. I'd like you to note that there are three possible social conditions Three possible social conditions. One of them, of course, is isolation. You could be actually alone. And then there's friendship. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's what I'm calling the city, but keep that in quotes today. The city just means a larger social arrangement, kind of a bigger social thing beyond just a circle of friends. Now think about the first of those for just a moment. Isolation, aloneness. Now we know that that is actually biologically impossible for the simple reason that you came from other human beings. But it's also worth reflecting a little bit on God's very, very early pronouncement that that social condition is not good. And we know this from experience. It is not good to be isolated and alone. Now, I mean, let's be honest. You know, people people are draining. (laughs) People bring challenges. And sometimes we instinctively want to shield ourselves from the duties and the demands and the needs and the burdens and even, honestly, the wounds that come with people, you know, that can be hard, really hard. But we also know from experience that it is only with other people that we experience certain blessings, certain gifts. You know, the the writer of Ecclesiastes, we just read this, points this out. If you fall and you're alone, that's a problem. It's a blessing if you're freezing to have someone to lie and warm you. If someone attacks you, 
You want someone with you. Those are blessings, gifts that come only when you're with others. But there are also possibilities we know that come only when you are with others. Like, I often spend time thinking, what is it that human beings can do or experience only together? What sorts of things can we do or experience that we can only do or experience if we are together? And it's more that there are other possibilities, not just possibilities for what we might do or experience together. You personally have possibilities that come only with other people. What do we ourselves become only with other people? Have you ever thought about that? You, you and I are actually, you're less of yourself alone because you have no one to call you forth. I've said this about family. Like, I had a certain view of Ben Miller before I got married and had four children. And, you know, with all of the tempest it has brought, I have been summoned forth to become things I would have never, ever become alone. Prolonged isolation can lead to stuntedness. It can atrophy you. It can even lead to madness. So that's isolation. But then when we come to these other two social conditions, friendship and the city, you can immediately feel some tension here between them. They're not opposed to each other, but I think if you think about friendship and then what I'm just loosely calling the city, you will see that these are pulling, these two social conditions are pulling towards very different goods, very different kind of good things, and it's not always easy to reconcile these two good things because friendship is pulling you toward a private us, right? A private us, like friends, like we are friends, and it kind of pulls you into this private little world of friendship, and that's wonderful, whereas the city pulls you toward a more public us, a much bigger kind of stage on which we need to think about who we might be, and that can sort of pull against the the privacy and intimacy of friendship. And you can see how both of, these, both of these pulls could go bad. I mean, think about how that friendship thing, that more private us, could go bad. If, if your city, quote-unquote, is a basketball team, that's the larger social arrangement. Let's imagine a basketball team, and let's say you've got a couple of stars on that team that are good buddies. We'll call them Michael and Scotty. I'll date myself. And Michael and Scotty are really close, and they are always hanging out off court. You know, they're always together. And their social media is full of, you know, pictures of them together. And they just have a rocking good time together. And on the court, they share private jokes. And, and they're just tight all the time. But the basketball team, the city, has five. And you can imagine how this might begin to rub over time. Or maybe Michael and Scott are just spending so much time off court that their play on the court is affected. You know, they shouldn't be out with all those, all drinking together the night before. But they're just out carousing and having a good time in friendship. It's affecting the team. Or the team begins to be resentful of the fact that they're always giving the ball to each other and not actually playing as a team. And that friendship begins to corrode the sense, hey, look, we are something too. Fine for you guys to be friends, but there's a team here. You remember that? Or you can imagine a coach and a star. You know, we'll call them Phil and Derek. And maybe they're friends. And you can imagine how that tight personal friendship could also affect the team with a certain leniency toward the coach's friend or investment in the coach's friend he doesn't give to the other players. And the, you know, the, the city, the team is affected. The political equivalent of that kind of local friend clique is the tribe. And I don't need to tell you how, a, how tribes can destroy the city. But then to the other extreme, you know, the, the city extreme, think about that, how that could go bad. It is very interesting how, at the far extreme of this, authoritarian systems, kind of totalitarian systems, you notice how often they demand sacrifice of personal relations in service of the city. 
It's not accidental that so many socialist regimes have been overtly hostile to the family because those private loyalties and the formative bonds of private family systems or friendship systems, they they could threaten to undermine the collective. You know, I was raised in a cultish sort of church. I'm not, I guess it was pretty, actually pretty much a cult in retrospect. And friendships were highly discouraged. We were not supposed to have friends because the friends might challenge the powers. There are corporate conglomerates that will crush people's personal lives because you can't have a personal life and still serve the, the conglomerate. Or this comes out, this more city-minded thing. It can come out in very liberal, humanitarian, sort of globalist ideals. We should be loving and welcoming and befriending everybody the same way all the time. And the only problem with that, as one political philosopher has pointed out, is that if you love everyone the same way all the time, you actually cannot have friends. If everyone is a friend, then no one is a friend. If everyone is family, then no one is a family. And so these are the ways in which these two social conditions can pull somewhat against each other. Now, having mapped that territory a bit, I just want to talk today about the business of being friends. And think for a few minutes about friendship. And I want to start by how friendships form. Oliver O'Donovan says that there are three things that build a common life. A life together. We can share goods, stuff. We can share words, and we can share our presence with each other. And that's where especially you see friendship coming in, sharing our presence with each other. Aristotle, the philosopher Aristotle, suggestively defines friendship and action as, quote, the mutual, pleasurable choice that two people make of each other's company. The mutual, pleasurable choice that two people make of each other's company. I want to be in your presence. I want to be with you. But I want to think for a moment about why we choose each other's company. And you can think here of kind of a scale from lower reasons to higher reasons. Now, kind of on the lowest rung, we choose to be in each other's company because it's useful. We're useful to each other. You know, you're my study partner. Or we need to get together to paint a room in my house. Or you have a drink with your coworkers because it's a way of kind of keeping up the esprit de corps of your collegiality at work. Or you just you need to get the kids out of the house. You're losing your minds. So you call another parent. You're like, hey, do you want to go to the park together? And in all these ways, this is, this is friendship. It, you know, we're useful to each other. We get together because we, have, we, we can give each other something. And I don't in any way mean when I say useful to disparage this. These are not just cold, efficient, utilitarian transactions. This does not need to be business-like at all. Actually, this usefulness to each other, these useful friendships, are so much of the social glue of our society. It's what holds things together that we give and exchange things that we need and, and desire from one another. And actually, if you think about these kinds of, you know, they don't always have to be like contractual and cold. From the most business-like, and there are business-like, there is business-like usefulness, like, you know, I give you money and you give me a, you know, bag of apples. But right down to the most, you know, fundamental stuff of neighbors being neighbors, like, hey, neighbor, can you just watch my house while I'm away? These interactions, these friendships are full of goodwill. And actually, we are receiving and acknowledging the value of one another. You are useful to me. You have something to offer me, and I have something to offer you. And that's useful friendships, the lowest rung. Going up a rung, we choose each other's company because it's pleasant. You know, your company feels good to me. I don't know, there's chemistry. 
Now, this is actually wonderful. It's, it's, it's a good thing in itself. There's nothing wrong with it in itself. But I do think when it comes to the fact that you spend time with people just because it's pleasant, we should be wary here. Because, as you know, what is pleasant may or may not be good. We read this proverb that says, a man of many companions may come to ruin. It has happened very often in the world that enjoyment of company has led people into destruction. The fact that someone is pleasant to you doesn't really tell you very much. That doesn't tell you very much about whether this is a good relationship. And actually, friendships built on just pleasant, you know, we like each other's company, they're somewhat unstable because feelings of pleasure are unstable. You know, this friendship will last as long as you enjoy each other's company. And when you stop enjoying each other, it'll be, that'll be that. But there's a third and highest rung of friendship where we choose each other's company because it is good. Because I have found in my friend what the ancients called virtue. An excellence of mind. An excellence of soul. An excellence of vision. A love of goodness. A love of truth. A love of beauty, and it echoes my own heart and mind and soul. We probably have all had those moments when you say, you thought that too? You see that too? You want that too? I hear you, man. That's amazing. I've been thinking that for years, and suddenly there's a friendship. I found excellence. I found virtue in my friend. Now, let me just give a couple brief observations about these friendships built around the good. First observation, you don't really discover that kind of gold in someone unless you have shared some life. Usually some struggle, usually some sufferings. Someone has said there are initially only would-be friends. This kind of friendship doesn't come immediately. This is not instant pudding. You've got to spend some life together to find out that someone is full of virtue. And the deepest and best friendships are built on a kind of tested trust. I have spent enough time with you, been in enough crucibles with you, that I have gotten a window into who you are, and I have seen the gold. You know, this is what happens in what are called a band of brothers in the military, where guys have been in combat together. And they come home, and they talk about this band of brothers experience, where, you know, they have shared a cause for which they are willing to give their life. They have shared a mission. And on that mission, they have tested each other's mettle. They have seen into each other's souls. And having seen what they have seen, they will say, I would unhesitatingly put my life in the hands of this, this one who is in my band of brothers. That is deep friendship. A second observation about this kind of friendship. You know, Jesus, in reconciling us to God together obviously opened up for us the ultimate horizon of human friendship. And that ultimate horizon of human friendship is to discover in each other and to pursue together love of the highest good, who is God himself. There is no deeper and higher friendship than loving the highest good together and laying down our lives for him and for each other in his service. That is a whole horizon of friendship that Jesus opened. A third observation Finding this virtue, this vision, this excellence, this love of goodness in each other, and prizing that in each other, and sharing it together, it is not always pleasant. It is not always pleasant. The Proverbs 27 text, faithful 
are the wounds of a friend. There will come times in a friendship built around the good when I actually need you to call me out and call me higher because I'm slipping in my hold on the good. I'm not loving the good. My excellence is being tarnished in a way. And if you're a faithful friend, you're going to call me back to that good we love together. And you're not going to stand for my just kind of sliding into mediocrity or sin or neglect. The deepest and truest friendships are the ones that have been sustained actually by faithful wounds. Where I can get in your face a little bit and we can say some hard things to each other because we love the good. The fourth observation, and I would say probably the most controversial about this kind of friendship. This kind of friendship built around the good tells us why Christian friendship ranks higher than family, ranks higher even than marriage. You know, the church talks a lot about family and marriage, and it even sometimes kind of obsesses about family stuff. It is not the highest love. And you can see this very easily. First of all, obviously, not only must we as Christian friends continue to love God with our friends, even if that alienates us from our family, right? Are you with me? We as Christian friends are to love the good, love Jesus, love God together, even if that alienates us from our blood relatives. It might be that the person in the pew will be that friend who sticks closer than the brother who hates you because you love Jesus. But I'm going to push this a little bit more controversially into the Christian realm. That should be obvious. But even in the Christian home, in the Christian realm, the goods that you love in your family and the bonds you have around those family goods, they are extremely temporary. Whereas your friendships in Christ will last forever. I will love Sarah forever. I will not love her much longer as her husband. We will shortly love each other forever as friends in Christ. When she meets her parents in a few years, she will not meet them as mom and dad. She will meet them as Paul and Sharon, friends in Christ forever and ever. I will love Brian forever. I will not love her forever as her dad. That's only a few more years. And then we will love to each other as friends in Christ forever and ever. And it is a serious problem if our emphasis on the family and the goods of the family and the bonds we have in the family are allowed to completely push out the higher ranking good, biblically speaking, of Christian friendship. Sort that out as you will. Now let me say something about how friendships fail and what Jesus does about it. We've looked at how friendships form. How do they fail? And what does Jesus do about it? Again, following Oliver O'Donovan, I'll suggest that there are two ways that friendships fail. One is exclusion of those outside the friendship. Now think about this for a moment. Obviously, when you discover shared virtue, love of the same good, a common vision with someone else, that creates intimacy. That drives you together into a private love, and that is wonderful. But if you think about that, and C.S. Lewis is so good on this, if you think about that, because this relationship, unlike a romance, because this friendship is oriented toward a common good, outside of both of us. Like, we both love that. We're both into that. Friendship is inherently open to sharing that good with others who also love that good. In fact, you'll find you have more of the good if you find more people who love that good. I have a 10-year online group of friends. 
these have been extremely close friendships. We've gotten together in the flesh occasionally. We've spent a lot of time having extensive conversations about the things that matter most to us online, really deep, deep conversations. This has been friendships that have just sustained me through some incredibly lonely seasons. And one of the things that I've noticed is that I, I get tight with certain people in this group, and then someone else joins the group, and I'm always a little bit nervous because I know the people who are here, and we're so close, and we have such great conversations. What's going to happen when the next person joins us? And what you discover is they, too, love the goods that we love. And they start contributing and talking about those goods and sharing their love of those goods, and all of a sudden we have more of the good together. And it's wonderful, and it just keeps growing. It's not exclusive. And if what we love is really good, we should want to share it with others. But... In the sinful human heart, there is a perverse pleasure in the fact that we are in and they are out. Rather than enjoying we-ness around a good, look, we are together and we're enjoying that, this thing we love together. That's good we-ness. We become possessive of this we-ness. Why? Because now we're not so much enjoying the good. We are now deriving a sense of identity and significance and affirmation from the fact that we are this thing and they are not this thing. And that is the perversion of friendship. And that is what leads to an us versus them kind of friendship. And again, that local clique finds its political mirror in the tribe. Not love of the good, which we can welcome others into, but bonding in a way that is us versus them. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever been victimized by that kind of exclusion, you've got to be very careful. That does not drive you to try to find solace in cliquishness and possessiveness and shutting out of your own. I call this the Buzz Lightyear problem because we all know, any of us who have lived life in real friendships, we know that in the real world, Toy Story lies because Buzz Lightyear is not humble. And the friends don't come back, and Woody is not invited into that new clique. The new clique just carries on, and maybe moves on to a new clique after that. Woody will be left out, and he will continue to be left out. And the real test for Woody is whether he will then seek to go establish his own clique as a way of licking his wounds. Or remain generous and open. Because in Christ, this is how Jesus changes this way in which friendships fail. In Christ, because our identity and our inclusion have already been secured in him. We have a chance now to enjoy friendship without possessiveness, without exclusiveness, without finding our identity and our thing in this and shutting others out as almost a threat. In Christ, we can both have loyalty to old friends and openness to new friends, both faithfulness to those we love and generosity towards those that God might yet bring to us. But the second way that friendships fail is not just exclusion but betrayal. Some of you know this painfully. Some of you have had this bewildering and excruciating experience in which a trusted friend either turns against you or just turns from you. I've had this turning against experience. I know some of you have, and it's mystifying. Someone with whom you have shared deep, vulnerable communion suddenly turns on you. Why has my familiar friend lifted up his heel against me, you ask? Is it because of my strengths? Is it jealousy? Is it envy? Is it competitiveness? Or is it because of my weaknesses? Is it because my faults have been discovered and 
That's it? Is it because I'm just frail? I, don't, I can't do everything my friend demands? But suddenly there's hostility. But I think that actually is almost easier than perhaps the other kind of betrayal, which is where they just turn from you. And a friend that you've walked with just inexplicably loses joy in you, loses interest, no longer chooses your company, and just moves on to other goods and other friends. And this can be very strange. I've listened to some of you process this out loud with me. It can be very strange because if you reveal to your friend that this bothers you, guess what your friend will probably respond with? Well, now you're just being difficult. Now you're just pressing the, this friendship into boundary, beyond boundaries I'm not willing to go beyond. You're just now being needy, and the friend will avoid you even more. And finally, you will have to simply close that door quietly and find a way to deal with your pain. And how do you deal with your pain? Well, in Christ, because sin does not have the last word between us and God, isn't it comforting to know that sin does not get the final say between us either? One way that Christ changes even friendships in which there's been betrayal is that in the simple act of forgiveness, friendship can be resurrected. There's a very interesting moment at the end of the Gospel of John. Now, I just read you, Jesus said at the Last Supper... A friend lays down his life for his friend. And right before the supper, Peter said, I'll lay my life down for you, Lord, and then went out and denied him three times. And at the end of John's gospel, Jesus comes to Peter. And he asks him three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he uses the word agape, love. And Peter responds with a different word. He says, Lord, you know I'm your friend. You know I phileia, the Greek word for friendship. You know I'm your friend. Jesus asks again, Peter, do you love me, agape? Peter says, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And then Jesus changes the question, and he says, Peter, are you my friend? Do you phileo me? And Peter is stung by the reminder of his sin, but he's determined because he's looking at the resurrected Jesus. He's not going to leave it at that. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know I'm your friend. Jesus says, and Peter, feed my sheep, and I want you to know you will lay down your life for your friend. And he goes on to tell him by what death he will glorify God, laying down his life for Jesus. And he restores him. There is a time to say in a broken relationship, in a broken friendship where there's been some kind of betrayal, to simply say to one another, Are you my friend? Let's not let sin have the last word between us. But friendship is not always restored in this world. Maybe even frequently not restored in this world. And if friendships are betrayed and broken, you and I have the promise of Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what ultimately can man do to me. And what that frees you to do in faith not in self-protection. In faith, not self-protection, you can then go forth and you can continue to obey our Lord's commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, my friends. Love one another. Lay down your lives for each other as I have laid down my life for you even where you are betrayed, even where you are denied. Lay down your lives for each other. And we can because Jesus is raised from the dead. I want to conclude this message by offering, especially to those of you who are young, 
Two quick friendship skills, in light of what I've said. Two friendship skills. An attachment skill and a detachment skill. You want to attach to friends? Here's my attachment skill. Don't seek friends. Seek the things to which friends gather. Don't seek friends. Seek the things to which friends gather. Pursue interests. Live with purpose. Understand God's mission and set your goals within that mission and then go for it. And people will come with the purpose. They will. Mission creates community. You try to create community without mission, it'll flop. Or it'll get weird. Mission creates community. Never compromise your mission because you're desperate for community. Be on mission. Live with purpose. Pursue interests under the lordship of Jesus. And the people will come with the purpose. C.S. Lewis says this so powerfully. He says, pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. <laughs> Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Don't seek friends. Just seek the things to which friends gather, and you will have friends. And then the detachment skill, because there's a certain detachment that keeps friendships healthy. And here it is, and I'll be done with this. Enjoy your friends, but rest in Christ. Enjoy your friends, but rest in Christ. Beloved, that thing inside of you that God made, that wants to be known, wants to be wanted, wants to be prized, wants to matter, that thing inside of you can find rest only in the loving company of God himself, with God as your friend. God will use human loves to touch that part of you with his love, but every human love can fail, and beloved, most of them will at one time or another fail you. But Jesus, he is the friend who always, always sticks closer than a brother. And in him you can rest. And in rest you can love. Amen. Make us, Lord, a community of true friends in Jesus, and we pray.